Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place September 29th through October 1st at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. And if you're listening to this podcast the day that it comes out, that's Wednesday, July 7th, then today is the last day that you can purchase your full conference pass at our early bird rate. That's a $300 savings off the full price of that ticket. So go over to canmedevents.com right now and get your ticket so you'll be all set to join us in Pasadena this fall. In other news, we have officially launched our CanMed archive page, which includes over 100 CanMed presentation videos dating back to our first event in 2016. The CanMed archive is a free, searchable video library covering a range of topics related to cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. Go to canmedevents.com and click the banner on the homepage to check it out. I also want to remind everyone that the healthcare provider study we are doing with the Cannabis Center of Excellence is still ongoing. If you are a healthcare provider, please take a few minutes to complete the survey to help us better understand medical cannabis knowledge, attitudes, and practices among healthcare providers in the U.S. and Canada. As an added incentive, one lucky participant will win a CanMed 2021 practicum and full conference ticket. The link to access that survey is in the show description. All right, this episode's guest needs no introduction. Kevin McKernan of Medicinal Genomics is back to talk about psilocybin and the mushrooms that create it. Kevin and the team at MGC have published a highly contiguous reference genome for psilocybe cubensis, which some listeners may know is the species of mushroom often referred to as the magic mushroom. Kevin and the team have also sequenced several different mushroom strains to try and better understand the genes of interest and pathways responsible for psilocybin production. If you're new to psilocybin and mushrooms, don't worry. We cover the basics as well as new findings in our conversation, including potential therapeutic applications for psilocybin, what is fueling the rapidly growing interest in psilocybin, psilocybin's path towards legalization, other psychoactive compounds found in mushrooms, how mushrooms are cultivated and bred, and what that means for applying genomics, the discovery that there is more than one way mushrooms synthesize psilocybin, and more. Before we get to my conversation with Kevin, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, the New Scientist magazine and their upcoming campaign titled The Future of Psychedelic Medicine. The Future of Psychedelic Medicine campaign highlights the R&D and innovations currently taking place within the psychedelic space to raise awareness for how psychedelic medicine could transform mental health treatment. The campaign also aims to highlight the potential psychedelic medicine has to help with a range of mental health conditions, including depression, addiction, anxiety, PTSD, abuse disorders, 
OCD, and address the stigma surrounding this type of treatment. Read the Future of Psychedelic Medicine campaign on July 22nd in the New Scientist magazine and on healthawareness.co.uk. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kevin McKernan. Good afternoon, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know it's uh, it's really odd to have such an outsider on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. You were the first guest on the podcast, and now you are the first repeat guest on oh, the no. podcast. So, okay. uh, congratulations on making history yeah. <laughs> yet again. I try hard. Speaking of making history, you recently published a highly contiguous reference genome for the psilocybe cubensis? Is that the I way to... I think, so I used to say that as well, but I, the way I've heard people who are more familiar with the space than I am is I call it psilocybe. Ah. Um, but I used to call it psilocybe as well because psilocybin is probably what you've heard of. That's the compound it makes. Right. Okay. So yes. that's good. I yeah. wanted to lay some groundwork here in terms of uh, terms for people who might not be as familiar here. So psilocybe is the genus of mushroom. Yes. Correct. And then psilocybe cubensis is a species of mushroom that's typically referred to as the magic mushroom. Yes. That produces psilocybin, which is the psychoactive compound that makes you trip. Yes, and now to make things more confusing, there's also this compound called psilocin. Okay. So now you can trip over that one too. <laughs> yeah, that was gonna So that was gonna be one of my questions. So is, say all five things fast, right? <laughs> is there compounds in addition to psilocybin that can create the psychoactive effect? So there is a, uh, a suggested um, entourage effect, if you will, that we don't know much about at the moment. So I don't know how psychoactive they are, um, but they're certainly tryptamines. So there's other tryptamines in the, in the mushroom that are in the pathway, just like in, in cannabis where there is olivetol and then you get CBG and then CBG gets folded into a variety of other cannabinoids. There's a similar thing going on in, in making these tryptamines is that there are precursors to psilocybin, which is psilocin, and then in the pathway there's also these other different methylations on the molecule, much like maybe different tails you might have on cannabinoids that are baocystin and uh, originacin, and then there's nor psilocin and nor baocystin. So there, there's there's a spectrum of these things. And I'd say we we, we mostly know about psilocybin. And um, we do know the mushrooms make a variety of these different compounds. Um, and we don't yet know which mushrooms make how much of each of them and what the um, contributions are to uh, the psychoactive effects. So um, there's a lot to learn there. Another thing that came up very recently that people may not fully appreciate on these mushrooms is they also make monoamine oxidase inhibitors. This changes the metabolism of these compounds in your stomach or in your liver. So um, that's kind of rare in that when you look at the story of other tryptamines, like DMT is quite known from an mm. ayahuasca, but they actually have to mix ayahuasca with some other plant that makes a monoamine oxidase inhibitor because DMT itself doesn't get through the gut. Um, so the, the mushrooms figured out a couple different tricks here. It's figured out how to phosphorylate psilocin into psilocybin so that it can get through your GI. Uh, it's also figured out um, how to make these other monoamine oxidase inhibitors to alter your liver metabolism uh, so that more of these things get through. 
So there's, there's, there's a lot going on inside this tiny little genome. And uh, that's what I think piqued your interest. Is it, has, it shares a lot of the same similarities to cannabis in that uh, one molecule was getting all the credit when there's probably more. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it looks like it's probably going to be going medical soon. At least it's recreationally approved in several jurisdictions, including three here in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, we, in order to understand which mushrooms make these other entourage effects, um, we wanted to just go do a huge survey on all the mushrooms out there to figure out if we could find genetics that altered the, the, uh, the uh, expression of these things. So that's kind of where it started. Okay, and so it seems like interest in psilocybin is at an all-time high now. Good so what, what's, what's fueling this interest? Well, there's several things. I, I think um, the, mo the best work on this is out of Johns Hopkins looking at cancer-related uh, depression. Um, however, at CanMed, I kept meeting people um, that have also seen some remarkable effects in cancer, like glioblastoma. I think Bonnie Goldstein told me about one case that responded to, to psilocybin for glioblastoma that was not responding to cannabis, uh, which is kind of fascinating. I don't, I don't understand the pathway and why, but um, hmm. they are neurogenerative, so that they, they do have the capacity to uh, you know, reprogram this default mode network in your brain, and uh, they seem to have a lot of the properties of CBD in that they're neuroplastic and they help, they help regenerate neurons. So um, they're looking at this, I think, for beyond just depression, but probably PTSD and maybe even brain injuries. So. Um, that works really exciting that when you look at the work in depression, um, it seems to be more promising than cannabinoids in many ways in that, and, and John Tompkins, they're doing like three treatments and getting like over 70% success rates, and then it's like permanent. It's not like this chronic, you must be on CBD the rest of your life uh, type of thing for PTSD. Um, or THC, whatever it may be, whatever cannabinoid. But what you tend to see with the cannabinoids is folks tend to be using those consistently to, to manage the effects. Whereas the, the data that you're seeing with um, psilocybin is that three guided treatments, uh, these are therapies that are monitored with, we know, with professionals, and um, they have a, a massive success rate on turning around uh, depression. So that's that's unique. You don't, you don't see that in a lot of other antidepressants. It's kind of like you're on them for life. And... Um, I'm curious if that's one reason why it's not getting a whole lot of attention from the pharmaceutical I would, industry. I would think so, yeah. Um, but that said, there was a recent um, article in New England Journal of Medicine that was comparing um, psilocybin with, it wasn't fluoxetine, but it was a similar SSRI, which is a serot uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So these are the traditional tricyclic antidepressants that are out there. And there are some drawbacks to those ones. I, I, some of my earliest work in this field at Emory was on those compounds. And they're not as serotonin selective as you think. And they come with all types of labels, such as suicidal ideation. So those are a little frightening when you're trying to treat suicidal ideation. And one of the side effects in the label is suicidal ideation. You're, you're, you're kind of putting the patient a little bit of a catch-22 there as to whether or not this drug's going to work for them. So um, that I, I'm not seeing that with psilocybin granted it's early we don't have these you know randomized controlled trials that might that might find that but um there is certainly a lot of um i think human population use of these things at least like like cannabis uh, we have you know hundreds if not thousands of years of human experience dosing with these things that um the the, the toxicology on this is understood it's they're not toxic uh in fact i've even seen some evidence I'll have to find a good citation for this, but generally LSD and psilocybin are thought to be less toxic than even the cannabinoids, if you can believe that. 
Um, like there's just not overdoses with these things. You might do stupid things on them, right. but they're not they're not chemically toxic. Um, so what about what about lasting effects? You hear people who who trip and they're never the same again. I know, I know. I don't I don't have I'm not a good resource on that. That's probably um, I bet Johns Hopkins has better data on, mm-hmm. on uh, what some of these chronic conditions and flashbacks and other things that you hear about may. Um, may play a role in because I, 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 there's certainly the same type of conundrum we have looking at schizophrenia in cannabis and looking at you know mental illness with, with these psychedelics is that um, they attract a lot of people who have a mental illness and are seeking to treat it. And uh, oftentimes you don't know whether the compound helped or accelerated it, right? right. So um, that those, those need good randomized controlled trials to really sort out. But um, uh, that, that, that's, uh, there's certainly that issue with the current treatment status that we have with SSRIs. I mean, you, you see a lot of these, uh, unfortunately, you, when you hear about a lot of these, um, you know, gun effects in the United States where there's, you know, kids that are you know, running around shooting up schools, it's, it's quite frequently they're on SSRIs. And so um, there's, there's a lot to be, um, I think, reckoned with here that, that the current treatments we have aren't clean of those things either. Um, and so we need to be looking at things that are non-toxic and be giving these alternatives a chance. Yeah, another thing that you had mentioned there is when you were talking about three treatments that could kind of eliminate sy- symptoms, you mentioned guided um, treatments yes. under yeah. the supervision of a professional. I was wondering if you could speak I more don't, to that. I don't know what those are. I have not experienced one, so um, that's probably a better question for, um, we'll have to find somebody uh, who has more experience with yeah, that. Yeah, and maybe just in general, like why yeah. is it... Why is that more um, prudent in this type of therapeutic? I, I think they're so they're such powerful compounds um, that uh, somebody who has a bad experience with them probably needs a sober person next to them to help talk them off the ledge, so to speak. Uh, and that's the intent there is yeah. that the dosages that they're using for these types of um, you know reversing depression almost permanently are up in the, using one to three grams of these uh, mushrooms, which if they're 1% uh, psilocybin, uh, these things get up into, um, uh, what does that put us at? If it's three grams, it's 1%, it's like 30 milligrams of pure compound. Um, these, uh, you know, there's also a whole um, interest in microdosing these things, which is a completely different scenario. Right. This is not putting yourself into the point where you start to hallucinate. This is just getting a, you know, a serotonin agonist in your system that is a bit more of a stimulant. And many people are reporting that they have more productivity on these things, that they're better for computer programming. We have these waves out in Silicon Valley where there seems to be a, you know, a, this popularity and in, 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 in utilizing these things for, for almost as a performance enhancing drug, not necessarily for sports, but for, um, for um, getting work done. So. I don't think that's necessarily getting guided. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's self-guided. But I think when you get into the stage where you start getting dissociative effects, um, there it's as a safety side of the equation, they probably won't have someone else around. Yeah, that makes sense. And now, and the whole idea of microdosing. And now, is that psilocybin um, specifically, or some of these other psychoactive compounds? I think I'm hearing of it in other with, with LSD and with psilocybin, and um, I think it, it probably spans the gamut. But um, you know, my dipping my, my toe in there, just talking to people, it seems as if mushrooms are quite popular for that, just because of their. Uh, there's some slightly different pharmacology to those in LSD. LSD is externally potent, mm-hmm. uh, and um, the, uh, the receptor biology there is. I probably need a refresher on, but this is you know, psilocybin is mostly hitting serotonin five. It's five HT two A, and LSD may may tickle a few others. Okay, so we've talked a bit about the 
um, you know, therapeutic uses for, for psilocybin. And you mentioned that, you know, it's legalizing in, in more states. How do you see the legalization of psilocybin? Um, what's the path there and how similar is it to what we've seen with cannabis? I think it's going to proceed faster than cannabis because it can go in the wake of cannabis. Uh, it can follow the same model. It can go through and effectively utilize the same, all right, let's get medical up first and then perhaps there'll be a recreational component to this later. Um, much of the legislation for doing dispensaries is already in place and people know how to use that playbook. So we've already seen Oregon go completely recreational, I shouldn't say recreational, decriminalized on an organ. I think Berkeley, Oakland, uh, Denver, Cambridge, Somerville, and Northampton here in Massachusetts have all done it. There's, I think there's some rumblings of other jurisdictions as well, maybe in D.C. and a few others. Um, so it seems as if it is moving at a bit of a faster pace than cannabis originally did, where we, you know, we first saw cannabis uh, you know, back when the HIV ep epidemic just started with a medical campaign, and it took you know almost a decade for more of that to mm. spread. Whereas we're seeing the psilocybin motion go rampant very quickly. I think yeah. Canada is probably taking the lead here. They seem to have moved moved ahead much faster than than anyone else. So uh, I'm hopeful it'll move much quicker. Now, exactly how it's going to roll in the marketplace is a good question. That you know, I I don't, I don't see the um, you know, cannabis flower is still half the market, and you have all these other edibles and extracts. And I don't think that's going to go away because there's just a, you know a connoisseur of people who like terpenes and like the, the the experience of smoking flower. I don't know that we have that with chewing these mushrooms. You know? so, <laughs> I think it's not shiitake. It's, it's not shiitake. It's probably going to go more into an extract mode um, or capsules mm. or uh, or teas. Who knows? But. Um, there's certainly a different um, barrier to entry as it comes when it comes to growing these things. I think if you want to get involved growing cannabis, if it's indoor, there's quite a setup involved there to get lights and everything, and you know maybe a hydro and everything else involved. Uh, outdoors, perhaps you know you you set it and forget it outside and, and hope for the best. But um, it certainly takes more like you know eight to twelve weeks to get something off of a cannabis plant, whereas these mushrooms can grow in like two months in, in a in a Tupperware bin basement you know this is not something that is uh, the, the barrier to entry is much lower on this so there may be more people trying to home grow these much like beer mm. uh, than uh, you might see with cannabis that requires lots of lights and you know the growing cannabis in your house everyone knows just stinks up your whole house very hard to deal with that if you if you want to keep it discreet um, that's not the case with some of these um, uh, folks who like to cultivate these things on their own so I think there still will be a, a home grow market and uh, you know a dispensary-based market for these things, and then there's also progress moving on the therapeutic side through the FDA. Uh, many people are optimistic that we'll see MDMA probably through a, through a successful trial this year, and maybe get some advancement. The FDA has designated this as a breakthrough therapy, um, so that means it's going to have an accelerated path through the FDA. And I think once the FDA has some approved versions of this, that will help guide the folks in the nutraceutical side what to do and how to apply it. Now, there'll probably be some labeling constraints. I bet the FDA is not going to want to see the dispensaries or the nutraceutical side making medical claims mm -hmm. on whatever they're selling. But um, there, I, I think that's going to very much um, lead the charge that when you start seeing the FDA versions of these things roll out, uh, it's going to give many of the physicians a hell of a lot more comfort and it's going to give, I think, better guidance as to how these should be handled in um, uh, on the dispensary side of things. I was hoping we could talk a bit more about the cultivation of this because, like you said, it is very different from cannabis. And I'm thinking from a, a genomic side, too. Um, how does the difference in the cult cultivation of 
these mushrooms kind of affect how genomics could be used for breeding or any so other that's, purpose? That's a really good question. That's one reason why we set about sequencing all these genomes is just to figure out, like, how is this market going to be different? Can cannabis is so diverse that every time you make a cross, you're kind of you're playing, you're gambling with a new game, which is kind of fun. You get new, yeah. new genetics every cross. Um, most of the market here seems to be propagating a asexually derived spores. So there's actually a little bit more clonal consistency. So when, when, we, when we sequence the first 80 genomes here, um, we did it all with spores. Uh, so, they don't, so you can ship spores legally, which is really bizarre because you can't ship cannabis seeds legally. Uh, well, maybe you can do the hemp seeds now, but but in the past there, you couldn't, you know. And now, with spores, they're they're legal for taxonomic purchases because there's no um, you can't detect any psilocybin in them. So you know, if anyone gets caught with spores, they ultimately test to see there's if there's schedule one compound in them. There isn't. Um, so I've heard from some people, though this isn't a legal opinion, so don't bank on this, but I've heard from some people that you can actually culture them with um, minimal mediums so they don't express any psilocybin if you want to do like you know some mycology stuff. But hmm. uh, for our purposes, we don't need to. We can, we can get enough DNA out of spores and sequence their whole genome from them. So typically what happens is people will get spores from either a spore print or from uh, a syringe where they, they'll put the spores in some kind of liquid media so they're in uh, a 10, 10 ml syringe. And then they'll inject that into a sterilized bag of grains. These things love to grow in grains. And that has to be a very, very pure injection. If there's any bacteria around, the bacteria like we experienced doing um, all this plating and, and stuff with uh, on, on the cannabis uh, microbial detection front, if there's any bacteria around, it doubles every like 30 minutes and the mold can, can take you know, a month to grow. So the, bac the bacteria can like take over the thing and destroy it. But the, the goal is to get a spawn bag that is grown with mycelium from this thing, from the spores, and that takes maybe a month. And then once that's done, you immerse that grain that's got a full mycelium grown throughout it. You dunk it in water for 24 hours to simulate like a rainstorm, mm. uh, pull it out, and put it in a humidity chamber for in a few weeks you have lots of mushrooms. Um, so I think the key, the key aspects are making sure that there is absolutely clean spores going in. Uh, and that's one thing we did notice. We did use some of our um, PCR tools that we have here to look for total aerobic count inside of these things. And we saw many of the different spores that were provided had high levels of TAC. And those tended to have, you know, they gave us more sequencing. I don't know how well they grow, but okay. I've heard from people that growing those can be complicated if there's any bacteria around. Um, but we can gauge which ones that we can get clean genomes from just up front by looking at how much bacterial to fungal DNA is around. And by looking at that ratio, we can say, okay, this one's got a lot more fungal DNA than bacterial DNA. Use that one for sequencing. This one's got too much bacteria. Don't sequence it or you'll get a metagenome. But that was probably in like 20 to 30% of the spores that we collected, we threw out or, or when we sequenced it, we realized that they were dirty and um, they gave us dirtier results. So um, Now, would that be like in a beneficial upfront screening tool for whether or not you were going to try to It might be. Yeah, it, it, it might be. I would imagine... Um, as you scale this up, a lot of people are growing these in compartmentalized um, boxes for that reason, because if they get a bacterial contaminant, they don't want it to go everywhere, mm. and so they, they break them up into small bins. But um, e even so, uh, you, how they're, how they're getting those spores, um, I, I would imagine to scale this up, 
the syringes probably don't scale. They probably have to put the syringes into some type of liquid culture and grow a huge culture and then spread that everywhere. But you would want to monitor that large culture to make sure that there's no bacterial contamination in there. There are some folks who are a little concerned about putting antibiotics in the mix too because the antibiotics can sometimes slow down the growth of the mycelium and at the same time they don't want it to get absorbed into the mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And then people start eating, you know, gentamicin labeled uh, uh, mushrooms. So they're trying to do this without adding any antibiotics, which is, um, it means you, you probably have to be very, um, very sterile in the process and maybe even monitor for um, bacterial load throughout the process. Hmm. You, you brought up an interesting point in the genomics of this, which is um, this works really well in cubensis, but cubensis isn't the only species that makes these things. There's about 200 different mushrooms that make psilocybin. There's even one that infects cicadas that makes them hypersexual and spread the spores every 16 years. Um, and, oh, yeah. And yeah, so there's, it's called Massapora, which is a really interesting one. It infects the cicada and then starts making... Um, psilocybin inside of the cicada so that it goes crazy and, and ends up getting bisexual and hypersexual and starts spreading its spores everywhere in sort of like an orgy fashion. Wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a, that, that one's a really bizarre genome. It's like 600 megabases, which is much larger than the 45 megabase genomes we see with cubensis. But um, what we're trying to look at by, by sequencing outside of the cubensis um, species uh, is to see, do they all make psilocybin in the same way? Um, there's been some great work out there by Jason Slott's lab and um, Reynolds and Frick and uh, Hoffmeister. They're, these are all folks who have published in this area um, that have noticed that a lot of the psilocybin um, synthesis genes are all clustered together. They're all in this tight little 20 kb region in the genome, and that seems to horizontally transfer to other mushrooms. Um, there's also been some evidence that they're not always clustered together. And, and some of these other mushrooms. That the, the, the pathway is a little bit more separated, and we don't know why. Um, but they're also diverged enough from a sequencing standpoint that the primers that we use on the cubensis front probably aren't going to work really well when you go into tampanensis or when you go into azuracens or um, mexicana. They're, these are all these other types of mushrooms that make, they're, they're all psilocybe, and there's a couple that are even outside of psilocybe that make psilocybin. But they are sequent from a sequence standpoint, they're diverged enough that the primers we use to target these genes in the cubensis are probably not going to work on those. Mm -hmm. So um, that's different than the cannabis run. The cannabis run, we can pretty much, although it's very polymorphic, we can make primers that hit THC and CBD and, and these genes pretty readily once we have a good map of like 40 or 50 genomes. We can target that throughout the population without tripping over too many of the differences. But the differences that we're seeing even amongst the cubensis lines is probably a variant every 150 bases. What we see in the hemp front is you get about a variant every 50 bases if you compare it to something like Jamaican lion. It's probably about every 100 bases when you compare it amongst uh, drug type cultivars, like all type ones. So there's more polymorphism, there's more, it's more repetitive in the cannabis front, but the genes that are responsible for making cannabinoids are really conserved. Uh, whereas you get into the psilocybe front and it is not just stuck into cannabis sativa that makes it. It's, you see this like psilocybe, multiple different species of psilocybe that actually make mm. this. And so they're much more diverged than what we see in cannabis, uh, which means the genomics in many ways is more complicated, but the propagation of it is much more sim simple. They're not, there aren't people doing these crosses, not yet. It can be done, but most people are just asexually reproducing these spores. And, um, and, and then when they see one particular mushroom that produces a really like large mushroom cap, they grab spores from those and try and repeat the process because maybe there's a mutation in that one that, that means it, it produces a lot more yield. Uh, that's kind of how the game is going now, but there isn't this like 
I'm not seeing a lot of people take different mushrooms and cross them very much to try and get new varietals. That seems to be um, probably only very few people in the world that know how to do it. Right. And so it's not, uh, most people are just hoping for, for mutations inside the batch that they have and then try to propagate those. So it's, it's a different game, um, but I think genomics is going to play a role. We're already seeing some benefits uh, in, in that we're finding variants that are in the pathway that we think are responsible for certain um, cultivars or strains, I should say, um, having, um, and there's the, the complicated, so it's, complicated word. It is a strain in this. Strain is appropriate Strain is appropriate here. Okay. Yes, right. yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> um, not cultivars. Uh, and varietals, they don't think are yet appropriate because the varietals kind of um, imply you've stabilized the genetics and no one's doing that yet. Uh, what is kind of interesting about them is, is uh, if you read about how people do cross them, is they put different things down on plates and grow yeah, them. Yeah, and maybe we can back up for a second here because yeah. I'm not sure I, I fully understand it. So explain how a mushroom does reproduce asexually first. Mm. It's got two life cycles. One life cycle is um, when it makes a fruiting body, it's making a cap, like the mushroom that you see, and those are asexually reproduced spores. However, there's a part of the life cycle where these things form clamps. So when two mycelium grow into each other from two genetically unique uh, mushrooms, and the mycelium of the same is, species. Mycelium is essentially it's like the, the, root the root system. system. It's like right. the root system, yeah. Okay. So these things, if, if they have compatible mating types, which is and something that we have not yet identified, we have some hunches as to where in the genome the mating type is, but this is kind of like in cannabis, there's an X and Y chromosome. Well, in, in fungi, they have mating, mating types, which aren't limited. There's much, there could be a much bigger spectrum of gender, if you will. <laughs> All right, so okay. you can have many, you have more than just A versus B mating types. Some fungi have, you know, thousands of mating types. If they're compatible mating types, they'll form a clamp connection, which is two mycelium that kind of like, um, kind of, it's kind of like a USB port coming together, and they can trade a nuclei. And when they do that, you end up with uh, a, a new part of the mycelium, which is dikaryotic. It has two nuclei in it, which are now two different genomes together. And then there can be a stage of its life cycle where those things go through meiosis and they exchange. Um, most people aren't doing that. They're not taking two different things, putting them together, and using a microscope to find if they make clamp connections. When they don't have compatible mating types, they usually will grow, and then they'll be like, you can almost see a visual barrier between the colonies. Like, they wow. won't grow into each other. It's, it's, the mating types are usually pheromones, and the pheromones are usually, if they're compatible pheromones, then they'll grow into each other and you'll get clamps and clamp connections. And if they're not, they'll kind of grow and there'll be like a colony exclusion zone there where they don't actually... <laughs> little um, DMZ. Little DMZ where they don't touch. Uh, and so um, there, there, there are a few people out there that know how to do this. They're rare, but um, they're, 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 some are even trying to cross things across species lines because there's some debate that maybe these things will even cross between species, which would be interesting. But um, So unlike cannabis breeding, I, I, there's there's far more people in the world that know how to breed cannabis and do crosses. I think in the in the in the mycology side, at least with psilocybe, you can probably name the people on your hand that know how to do it. Wow. And and most people aren't resorting to it because it's just it's just easier to like pick the biggest mushroom out of a particular box and see if you can grab those spores and and keep propagating and selecting for things that make very large fruits and have high uh, high potency. So. Um, where exactly? So where do the spores actually come from? Oh, they come out of the cap of the mushroom. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when the when the mushroom, the mycelium is almost just like a, a network of roots. Um, it's not technically correct, but it's what it looks like on side of some of these grain or spawn bags. Uh, and then once you heavily soak it and wet it, 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 that's a trigger that hey, we've got enough water content here. Start making fruiting bodies, and they pop out mushrooms. And then when the cap unfolds, those gills that are in the cap just dump spores. I see. 
Um, and uh, that's something that is uh, that people can collect, and they can either put those into you know uh, culture and solution, or or just collect them on a on a piece of tin foil, and you get like a spore print on tin foil, and they can store that, and then and then inoculate something with that later. Um, so uh, we were that's something we we set out to do is to see what what was the diversity. If you collect, we're not sequencing a single spore when we do this. We're sequencing collections of spores. So initially, we were worried that when you did that, you might have so much genetic variation it'd be a mess. But it turns out you can do it, and and it's not too messy, and you can sequence the genomes and assemble them and um, and count the, count the variants that you see. Yeah. So are the spores that the that it the cat produces are they clonally identical or they are they should be haploid and they should be. Um, not 100% identical in that they should represent two different copies of the diploid parent genome. Uh, so there is a stage where the diploid genome starts making haploid copies, uh, and so you can get you get a good representation when you do a spore prep of, of both um, the mother and the father, if you will, uh, in the original diploid dicaryotic genome. Uh, it, it goes through this weird stage. I'll have to point you to a video because it's unlike anything you've seen in like mammalian genetics or plant genetics. With these, they have these two different life cycles of asexual and and meiotic reproduction. Okay. Um, but uh, there's a video that we have here. We can link to this podcast that kind of walks people through this. But um, and when you do sequence a whole collection of them, uh, you end up getting enough haploid copies from the mother, enough haploid copies from the father, if you will, that you can you can effectively see both versions of the genome. There probably are some unique mutations on any given spore level, but we probably can't see those types of that, that level of resolution of the mutations unless we sequence really, really deeply, deeply because we're we're collecting like a million spores at once. So we right. so we get kind of an average picture of what the of the the the, the diploid genome looked like uh, when we sequence a collection of spores, uh, but we're not going to see those like tiny mutations that might make each spore itself individually unique. Just because they're so small and it would be kind there's of There's just such a small number them. of them. Yeah, there's yeah. like in any spore prep, we might be peppering a million of them. And if, and if every one of those had one unique mutation in them, they'd be drowned out yeah. because they'd be one in a million. But the real true differences in the parental lines that make them different, well, those are going to be 50-50 in all the reads that we see. And so we can call those. But the actual uh, really rare events, we're not going to see. But you said there's two different types of... Uh, reproduction, right? There's asexual as well. Yes, there's asexual, which is what comes out of the spore generation from the um, from the fruiting bodies, but there's another stage uh, that goes through meiosis after these things have formed a, a clamp junction. You have two nuclei there together. Eventually, those nuclei fuse, and then you go through a meiotic stage where they split again, and that's where you can get some of the genetic recombination. Very few people are collecting spores at that stage. Right. They're collecting the ones out of the that are really easy to get, uh, and so. Uh, for the for the purposes of sequencing, I think we're just based on the way the law is today. You can legally sequence the spores. You can't legally go sequence the other stuff. So we don't know what that does at the moment. Hmm. Uh, we've seen some models of what it does, but um, you uh, the, the spores are the one thing that that don't have tissue, don't express any of the compound, and so those are, those things are legal for taxonomic purposes. And, and genomics is like the ultimate taxonomic classifier. So. Uh, we're good on, on handling the spores that come out of the um, fruiting bodies, but uh, it's unclear if we're ever going to be able to, until it legalizes more, whether we can go and investigate some of the questions that you're asking. So, kind of getting towards the end here, what is sort of the most surprising thing that has come from the work that you've done? Um, I think what stunned me about it is the um, the work that's coming out in, in 
the SARS-CoV-2 space, where they're seeing these drugs, not exactly psilocybin, but fluoxetine in particular, uh, is being is very promising for shutting down the virus replication. That that was a shocker to me. I didn't even know about that until I read or saw Peter McCullough's work on that. Um, but people who are on tricyclics are less likely to get infected with SARS. Uh, so there's a whole um, pathway in, in, in the ACE2 receptor. When, when you're expressing ACE2, it co-expresses um, dopa decarboxylase, which is involved in the serotonin pathway. And so they're finding serotonin, you know, giving people serotonin agonists or serotonin selective, selective reuptake inhibitors, which accomplish very similar ends, uh, is fighting off the virus. I had no idea these things would play a role there. Hmm. Um, so there's a whole focus in the field on antidepressants, which is great. But if they're antiviral to some extent, as at least viruses that are coming in through ACE2, um, that's a whole other interesting side of, uh, of this story. So, um, so that was kind of exciting to, to read about. Um, what we're finding on the genomics front is that the pathway that makes these um, compounds is far more complicated than, we, than initially hypothesized. It was initially thought that there's this 120KB cassette that was horizontally transferred everywhere. We can now see when we start sequencing outside of cubensis that that's not the same. It's there's, there's a, the, the, the genes aren't clustered; they're scattered throughout the genomes, and there's and they're very different. So, uh, we already have a really nice picture of variants in all of these genes across 80 different cubensis genomes, including outside of cubensis in Azuricens and in Tampanensis and in Galandois. Um, that we're now starting to see um, other ways these mushrooms have figured out how to make these things. So there's, there's an argument for convergent evolution going on simultaneously to this horizontal gene transfer. And that's going to be interesting because some of the other um, non-cubensis species like Azuricens are reportedly make more psilocybin than cubensis. They're just really hard to find. Hmm. They're mostly in the Pacific Northwest. I think Paul Stamets is the person who figured that out or found those. Um, and we don't sequence those very much. And you don't see them much in the underground markets for growing, although people do sell the spores. Um, the fact that they're making psilocybin in, in a kind of a unique way is very interesting to us because that might help guide, all right, what properties of, that those mushrooms have can we breed into the more commercial lines? Because mostly people for commercial purposes are growing cubensis and maybe five or six of those strains. It's mostly B+, Golden Teacher, Penis Envy, another, another you know, enlightening name we have in the, uh, in the mushroom space. You think cannabis strain names are bad? We can get into the mushroom space, right? Um, those are really the, probably the three, maybe the albinos as well, or, or maybe four, the most commonly used because they grow very large fruits. Um, but size isn't everything, um, sadly to use that pun, uh, because some of the smaller ones are more concentrated in the compound. So there might be a way to intercross those or, or learn what we can learn from Azuricens to get the production up on the other ones. Likewise, there are some that are named uh, Baocystin, which I assume is because they make more of that one compound. So. Now that we have this pathway mapped out, we can begin to look at the variation we see between all these different um, types of mushrooms to try to custom breed them in one direction or another. Or there's already people doing work on cloning these things into yeast and getting beer to make it, right? <laughs> so um, right. That's, uh, that might be the ultimate way to make some of the more rare versions of these things, right? Just like in cannabis, uh, we're not seeing people wanting to clone CBD into yeast. I mean, they do it as a control, but you can get CBD really cheaply out, grown outdoors, but CBDV and maybe, uh, well, maybe Seth Crawford has that one nailed, but uh, you know, some of these really rare esoteric cannabinoids that we don't yet know how to breathe into the plant, people will probably be very successful brewing those. I think that might be the case with some of these compounds out of, the, out of Cubensis as well, that some of the rare ones get moved, get shuttled into yeast, um, and since it's fungi to fungi, that transfer will probably happen really readily. 
Um, but uh, maybe the more popular ones you want to breed for mushrooms that just grow very productively, and, and, and that might be de yeast out. So, um, yeah, that's uh, it's been a really fun project, and I have to give actually credit. Speaking of Seth Crawford, their team actually helped us get that first reference out. Um, so they they played a pivotal role in getting some of the sequencing done. Uh, and since then, we've now tacked on another 80 genomes against that reference uh, using Illumina sequencing, and that's giving us a really nice uh, perspective on every variant in the pathway that might be playing a role in how these genes are behaving. So um, it's a it's, a, it's really an exciting time for the field because suddenly there's like this mountain of data to comb through, and we can't comb through it all ourselves, so we've been putting a lot of it uh, into NCBI. Uh, and you'll see another preprint our first paper on the reference is out, published, and peer-reviewed, and we're now just submitting another one that has another 80 genomes uh, that we're playing with to kind of paint a picture of how complicated this particular pathway is. What's next? Um, after that, um, I don't know. I think after that we have to have reach out to the field a little bit more and find out, okay, what are the real pain points? Um, what does the market actually need? It's such an early market that um, we don't know where to move with this data. I think what might be next is understanding which variants in each of these genes are connected to the chemotypes. Right? We, we can't do the chemotypes right. here. So we have to partner with people. If there's people out there that, that are really good at chemotyping these things, we want that DNA to sequence it so we can correlate what variants we're finding that might predict what chemotype you're getting. That's probably the next phase. Um, so we've got to team up with people who, who do that. There's, there's an equivalent of a cannabis cop I heard out in Oakland. Um, uh, that, that may be able to help out there. So we're probably going to reach out to some of those folks and say, hey, whatever you're chemotyping, if it's, if it's one of these oddballs that makes a really different compound or makes a lot of one particular compound, let's get a sequence, pop it onto the map. Um, there will be a, a version of Canopedia that we're going to fork uh, into being a, a phylogenetic tree or mycelium, if you will, that will kind of display these things that we're working on. So we'll have some of the same functionality there. Um, so that people can get their um, their stuff sequenced with us, get it compared, get a list of variants. People can start tracking these things to see if they're you know if they're uh, predicting the, um, the the patterns that they're seeing on the chemotype front. So all of that uh, is soon to come. It needs to be built. Well, excellent. It's very exciting. A lot of work to be done. Um, before I let you go, is there any social media or websites that you want to plug to make sure that people can keep up with you? Uh, well, obviously, Medicinal Genomics uh, has a lot of what we're doing. Um, you can follow us on either Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, uh, I'm occasionally on LinkedIn, but um, th those are the areas that, uh, that we've been posting a lot of this content on. Um, a lot of credit, obviously, going to, to Seth's group for helping us get get the initial reference sequenced, and then um, there's a lot of the spore providers have been that have been helping as well. The group at uh, Inoculate the World has has been very supportive in getting us information on this, um, and you'll probably see more of this getting um, uh, some attention with the high science uh, group that's going to be uh, coming through here to take a look at CanMed and and all the work that we're doing here. So that's uh, another another plug for those folks. It's safe to assume that your CAMED uh, presentation this year will be on this topic? It will have some detail on this as well, yes. We're going to probably go through these 80 genomes and whatever we've discovered by uh, September. And um, the, we're, you know, we're also doing some very interesting st stuff on the, on the cannabis front, so there'll probably be some, some uh, virus material there that we're, we're working toward and, and a lot of the work we're doing with AOC. All, all of this actually was a project um, that got kickstarted because we were sequencing so many genomes for AOAC um, to look at these yeast mold tests, like what's actually growing on these things. 
Um, and we got kind of depressed because we're constantly focused on like the pathogens, the things that hurt people. And that's giving fungi a bad rap. They're not always hurting people. <laughs> so we said, why don't we throw on the same Illumina runs some, uh, uh, some of these things that help people? Um, just so we're not always running out there yelling, uh, you know, chicken littling the field with, with dangerous pathogens. The world needs to remember that actually a lot of these fungi are beneficial. And uh, particularly for growing cannabis, getting the root systems like interacting with some of these things is really important. So uh, just to spice it up a little bit, we wanted to make sure we weren't out there being uh, chicken little and fungi and that there's uh, fungi in the same runs that were um, quite beneficial. So. Um, these ended up being fillers for Illumina runs. And um, uh, so you'll see CanMed, um, we will be equal opportunity in fungi. We'll show the bad ones and the good ones. <laughs> Excellent. Well, looking forward to seeing that presentation out in Pasadena. And thanks for joining us again. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin McKernan. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to our sponsor, the Future of Psychedelic Medicine campaign, which you can read July 22nd in the New Scientist magazine and on healthawareness.co.uk. Our next episode will drop July 21st. That's two weeks from today. And if you are listening to this on July 7th, please go to canmedevents.com now and secure early bird pricing on your full conference pass. The prices only go up from here, so don't miss this chance to secure your CanMed ticket at a great price. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're listening to us on your podcast app, please rate and subscribe. We always appreciate it. All right. Until next time, please stay safe, stay healthy, and come back for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.